Hello! My name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I'm currently exploring the reading speeds of my students. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I'm currently critiquing the behavior of Krippendorf's Alpha. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking Yumpkin Pumpkin Ale from the Wichita Brewing Company. What a fun name. I enjoyed even just typing it. This is uh, another entry into my cinnamon exploration, which I'm conscientiously trying to hit this year for this season. And, you know, might as well jump into the uh, pumpkin spice latte part of the year. We're recording in October. This is going live in November. So between jack-o'-lanterns and pumpkin pie, it's the right time. Yeah, I'm noticing I saw the pumpkin on the can. I started to pour and wanted to comment on it's it's an ale. And so it's got every bit the look of it's a little bit of a darkness like an ale, but is not the stout, uh, not the stout that I think we've had recently. And I also didn't notice the cinnamon reference in the description, but definitely noticed it in the smell. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely smell that. It looks like pumpkin orange, and it smells like cinnamon. What are we doing today, Mr. Ralph? First, a note. I made an error in the recording settings that has affected our audio quality this month, and I apologize. This month, we read a robust experimental study on teaching self-regulation and the increasing benefits to students over time. They learn more and close a key achievement gap. Later, we read about a pedagogy of enactment, how to learn about teaching through teaching. It underscores the many ways we improve through practice. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read Teaching Self-Regulation. This was written by Daniel Schunk, Ava Berger, Henning Hermes, Kristen Winkle, and Ernst Fair. This was published in 2022 in Nature Human Behavior. So I queued up this paper because this was the first study I've seen in a long time, maybe ever, that was directly measuring interventions in a really precisely controlled way to teach and promote self-regulation and then connecting it back to really concrete learner outcomes like, like learning, like performance on, um, on standardized tests and things like that. So it was compelling because it was putting some concrete methodology around self-regulation, which is something that I particularly, uh, I care a lot about. Teaching self-regulation can mean so many things. So like that title was just very attractive to me. Like that's, it wasn't what I expected, but it doesn't feel like a bait and switch because self-regulation is so many things. And I still found it very, uh, very interesting and affirming. And this topic is particularly salient to me right now as I've just completed my first semester of my own solo taught cohort of AVID students uh, whose goal is to get that college degree uh, and learning those self-regulation behaviors and developing those habits so that we can do things to 
complete that degree despite the impulses I have now to to do anything but. I really like thinking about self-regulation because I really like the idea of promoting student autonomy, like just broadly in whatever the context might be. I like to promote student autonomy, but that can only be effective when students can also self-regulate. And so they kind of go hand in hand in a way that I didn't think about a lot early on in my career and sort of stumbled into or sort of idiosyncratically started to identify, I've got to help them make this sort of a decision if I want to offer them that decision. And self-regulation, like this formalization was really helpful for me to directly connect some dots. Yeah, the the subjects of this paper were uh, first graders. And they explicitly said in the paper, one of the challenges is the incredible difficulty. In fact, some teachers would argue impossibility of teaching self-regulation to first graders. And I appreciated them just coming right out and saying it. Yeah, it's real hard. (laughs) That's we're here to try. Uh, But, you know, their findings suggest it might be worth, you know, this won't be the first time that doing hard things is worthwhile. To sort of shortcut the discussion of the methodology, I feel like the design in many ways, and the authors even acknowledge it explicitly at one point, mirrors some of the foundational studies uh, for growth mindset in the way that they were approaching the intervention and the way that's the way that they were measuring it. So if you know that growth mindset was do a few small lessons about growth mindset and see if it matters, that's sort of roughly what they did with self-regulation too. Yeah, they had it uh, spaced out over, they had five five uh, approximately hour-long lessons, uh, but then they continued to observe these kids for three years after just those five lessons and and collect different data at different points during that time. And so uh, there's a sort of a structure to the lesson. So the core of the lessons was uh, telling the first graders a story about a fictional character who went through these different stages of uh, kind of uh, experiencing uh, this relationship to goals and problems. The five steps were one, identify the goal, imagine the benefits of the goal, identify distractions and obstacles in achieving the goal, identify behaviors we can do to overcome those obstacles, and progress through the whole, and then make those behaviors habitual. Those are one, two, three, four, five. That's that's what they are. And they told you know appropriate first grade stories of a fictional character going through that process, and then have them say, "What would that look like for you?" And have the kids engage in the lessons that way. That's basically what they did. One of the things that stood out to me in their process was they included a three-hour workshop to train teachers in delivering and facilitating these lessons. And they they provided those materials in the supplementary for this paper. So if you're interested in doing something like this, some of their materials are available uh, and we'd be happy to help you find them if we can be helpful. And so they had a real focus on fidelity of implementation and any longtime listeners to this show know we have opinions about fidelity. And so I thought it was interesting because I felt like the authors managed the idea pretty well. They said, this is something that is unfamiliar to most of our teachers in the program. And so we want to we want to help them do this well. And so we really had attention to providing tremendous detail. They pro- provided scripts even for the teachers to implement, which is good from an experimental standpoint right. to be able to compare across different settings. And I would be really curious to see a follow-up study either from the authors or from a new 
approach to look at how this influenced teacher practice long term, because they explicitly pointed out at the end of their paper, we don't we don't know what what the teachers actually did in their classrooms, what they did in their other curricular time. Like, did this resonate? So they they use the lesson and lessons like it more often or did they not? We, we don't have any way of knowing they didn't track that. And and as somebody who's been in the classroom, I can imagine if I was in this scenario and it was resonant material for me, I would make substantial changes to my curriculum for the rest of the year um, to be able to continue to reap some of these benefits. And so I would be really curious to see, were there big impacts in teacher practice that associate with these gains? Because I would speculate it's very likely. Uh, they measured a few things students, how they, they had a particular exercise where the students were trying to uh, identify mistakes in a string of letters. And and so they, they measured the students' persistence and efficacy in that particular task as measurements of successful um, self-redirecting. But one of, the, one of the things that in terms of impulse control that they used to measure, which I thought was very interesting, because of course they're working with first graders, so they're doing this at a first grade level. Like when I'm thinking of impulse control, I'm looking at my ninth graders, I'm talking, are they able, are they able to like, catch themselves in the middle of having an off-topic conversation and then say, you know what, I really should be doing my classwork and then go back to their classwork. Um, when I see that, of course, in my classroom, I just, I just want to... I want to do fireworks. I want to have stickers. I want to give them fist bumps. But on the other hand, I don't want to interrupt the fact that they are now in a redirected flow state because that's what they chose to do. So I'm like, I'm, I'm struggling with this. So I, I usually give them a, hey, I saw what you did there. That was great. But I do it a little bit later because um, I don't want to interrupt the, the, the I don't, I want them to get the fruit of their choice was to refocus their attention. So it feels like I want to reward you so much right now, but I, I can't, which is me, my own self-regulation in that moment. So, like, how are they? How are they doing this with first graders? And it, it was a little later in the paper when they when they revealed that methodology and what they were doing. They're actually doing like a reflexive impulse check where they're supposed to click a button when they see a particular image and then not click a button when they don't see that image or they see a different image and they get habituated to clicking the button and then they have to catch themselves and stop. And I was like, oh, that's that's absolutely appropriate because you got to be aware of what you're perceiving. You got to be aware of what you're experiencing in order for you to catch yourself and redirect yourself. So are they aware of what they are and are not supposed to do? Can they perceive in the moment if they're supposed to act or not act? And it, it just seems, okay, that is what this would look like at a first grade level. And so I was like, okay, I just, I found that amusing because I was, I was expecting these kinds of, you know, first grader philosophers, but no, this, that's actually what that's appropriate for their Well, and another piece of what I loved about their, their measurement stuff is they do these c computer mediated assessments, but then they also just ask teachers, like what, how are the students doing? And so like my, my researcher as a teacher advocate heart lit up a little bit when I was like, oh, good. That's, they, they did both of those things to triangulate their findings, which is one of many excellent methodological choices that they made. Uh, and I'm skipping ahead to results here, but what they found were remarkably aligned, right? The, the teacher assessments and the computer assessments told very much the same story, which uh, then comes back and gives us great confidence or at least more confidence in what they're telling us. So they did ask teachers, they constructed this pretty appropriate computer method. And then they also just asked the people who were in the room uh, and then compared them and they were telling them pretty much the same thing. So like, good on you. That's a good way to do that. 
And so let's talk about the patterns in their finding. And that what's another thing about this is that they didn't just have like, hey, we did the thing and then we measured the thing and here's what it is. They did repeated measurements over over time, uh, one one before the treatment, one proximal to the treatment, one, I think, six months later, one one year later, and then they did a different measurement of something else three years later. So they followed these kids for a while. And what they found is the effect size and significance increased over time. Yeah, and they, they said that they predicted it ahead of time, which is impressive, because I'm not sure I would have made the prediction. But they guessed that these sorts of interventions are going to take time because we can tell them how to engage in self-regulation, but then it will take practice, which like, yes. And so we can't expect them to be really good at it right away, even if we've given them some training because these lessons are pretty brief. And so what we're hoping to see is that we equip them with a skill and start them on a journey. And then they will walk that path for a while and it won't have measurable yields right away, but eventually they'll start to get better and they'll get better at getting better. And so then a little bit later down the road, we should start to see really measurable changes. And that's exactly what they saw in many of these cases. And I feel like that reinforces a story that you and I have talked about a fair amount with, you know, working with our students to develop procedures and to develop healthy routines and to really put in the work early to commit to your goals and that you're not really starting to reap the benefits until the end of third quarter, fourth quarter, but then you are just going like you are making the hay for the, like the very end of the, of the school year. I felt like these results really told that same story. It was so timely and so reassuring for me to read this paper right now, where we've ended the first quarter with my avid kids. And not only, I mean, I'm a big old philosopher king, man. I just want to, I just want to talk about psychology and philosophy and, and like, how are you going to live your life to hit these goals? And, you know, it picked up to us, be determined to pay the price of a worthy goal and like forge yourself and steal yourself and harden yourself. And my avid kids hate this message. <laughs> they hate it. Uh, and I'm getting a lot of pushback from them, from uh, from some of them. And I feel like, oh, is is this a completely flawed thing? Is this not going to work? Is this, am I just, am I just, I am having these moments of self-doubt and I'm, I'm, I'm like, should I be, I mean, really switching up how I'm approaching this? Should, should I be like, I don't know, man. Like I'm having these, these, these second thoughts. And then I read this and say, oh yeah, no, no, like really all this stuff doesn't really start to to have like really actionable fruit until about a year later. And then it's a real big deal. Oh, okay. Avid's a four year program. So if I say, if, if I look at this as the first quarter, no, no, it's not even the first quarter. It is the first one, one, uh, one, uh, uh, whatever, what's, I don't even know. I don't even know what it is. It's a teeny tiny fraction of how much time that I have with them. And normally, you know, if you're teaching your kids these mental health tips or these meditation strategies or these self-awareness skills, they're not going to be mature with them until after they've left your classroom. But I am going to get to see the changes of 
the interventions because I get to keep my kids for four years. And that was also true. I think they said that, that these first graders were in a cohort with each other or with their, I don't Yeah. For they, they were together for a while. Cause they do things a little bit differently over in Germany. And so like, I kind of have that experience now with my ninth graders. So I get to keep them, they get to stay with each other and we get to work together for four years. So we get to not only do this work now, which they don't want to do, which is fine, but then we get to see how they get to use it next year and then be conscious and deliberate about what is happening when those changes start occurring more frequently. And we can leverage that feedback effect. Uh, and so if you're in a situation out there where you get to see kids consistently for more than one year in a row, uh, you don't have to just take it on faith. You can actually witness the change in your students as they practice the self-regulation techniques that you're trying to get them to habituate. That is something that I thought about the difference between folks who are in a looping scenario, right? Looping where you teach your kids for more than one year and and teachers who are not like in almost every teaching context I've been in where I'm done at the end of, of one year uh, for the majority of students and their, their time three, their, their later measurement that wasn't way, way in the future is 12 to 13 months later. And I'd be really curious to see what the measurement looks like at month nine, like within the window of one school year, but as far out from the initial experience as possible, because that's a spot where I, it's, it's tough. It's tough to tell a teacher, do this. It's really going to matter and you will never see it. Yeah. Like that's a tough message to, to give. And especially from the standpoint of, I, as we're thinking about broader implementation with less fidelity, that also means you don't get any feedback by making a change that, that didn't work. Right. I, I will never see that unless I'm really, really connecting with them in their later courses. And so saying, do this, it's good, and you don't ever have to see results is, a, is kind of a dangerous message also if, if we're thinking about opportunities to catch mistakes or to catch problematic practices. And so I'd be really curious to see if month 9 or 10, was there a change? And, is, and also, how does that scale with other ages, of course? But the 12 to 13 months in particular is tough. Like, I saw my biotech students more than one year, so I could watch that, but... Um, otherwise I've got to rely on, I teach a, a freshman in biology and we work on retrieval practice and we do the hard early work. And then they go on and they have Woodruff's chemistry and they've got it to some extent and they keep practicing. And then by the time they get to anatomy and physiology as, as a, a junior, the teacher's like, wow, these students are really a lot more capable at the beginning of the year than I'm used to seeing. But that's three years later, right? And like, I don't get to hear that story very often. So, so that's, a, that's a difficulty with our current model, at least where we teach. Uh, one of the things that I found also affirming is that without uh, being, I mean, I was deliberate, but it was, it was coming from an internal place, not an... Uh, necessarily a research-informed perspective. Um, my AVID course has been pretty consistent with the layout of their sequence. We talk a lot about, we started talking a lot about the goal of getting a college degree. Why do we want a college degree? Um, what would we be able to do with a college degree? How would our life be different with a college degree than without a college degree? So we move from identifying the goal to imagining the benefits of the goal. And we just now finished my uh, my like high school version of the marshmallow test discussion where we talk about dopamine and all the things that we do that give us dopamine, but that they distract us from our long-term goals and how we can, we've talked about myelin 
myelin rather in developing habits and about how we can be conscientious about developing good habits or we can be complacent about developing bad habits. So we were talking about distractions and obstacles. And now we're about to transition to identifying specific behaviors consistent with navigating those barriers. So now that we've got this like philosophical and goal, goal structure in place, we're going to specifically talk about how do I take notes in class? How do I communicate with teachers? How do I organize my space at home to study effectively? How do I manage my time? How do I, like, what are the actual skills, the actual behaviors to navigate the impulses and, and, and obstacles that distract us from those goals? So, like, I'm actually just incidentally progressing through the same sequence that they did with these first graders and considering the results that they, you know, moving from 50th percentile to 75th percentile, that's a big chunk of percentile people. And uh, th those were big result jumps. Uh, that made me feel really affirmed. So this this paper made me feel great this morning, Ralph. Thanks for thanks for it. Yeah, it's a good one. And the, to put a fine point on it, perhaps, they were looking at learning outcomes. So even in a world where you have a teacher or a colleague who's saying, it's all cool if they're getting better at self-regulation, I don't care about that. I just want them to learn my stuff. Those, those results are here. They are learning better as a result. They are scoring significantly higher on their reading tests. Although I feel like there's another recommendation that comes out because they only had the lesson material focused on reading, reading self-regulation, reading relevant or reading connected stuff. Yeah. And then they also looked at the mathematics performance and didn't see significant changes between the groups, which really underscores the importance and the contextual nature of teaching self-regulation and self-regulation strategies. So just because I know my reading and English language arts colleagues are working on self-regulation doesn't mean I can skip it in math. I can skip it in science. I've got to do it in a contextual way, at least based on these results, because they didn't see any sort of spontaneous generalization. They only saw they only saw it within the domain where it was originally taught. So we can't rely on it coming from other places. We've got to embed it in our curriculum in order to see the benefits based at least on these results. Uh, yes. And these, again, they were very good at reminding us that these results are first graders in a, in Germany, so it was a developed nation, uh, in you know very specific demographic socioeconomic circumstances. So, um, can ninth graders generalize this information? I really hope so because that's kind of the I'm kind of banking on that as the crux of my entire program. I am like we can self regulate it's self regulation class, but then if they go to their other classes and they don't apply any of these skills, I really am wasting their time. Well, and I think that's another area for study is considering it didn't it didn't generalize with first graders, which is a huge developmental difference from from high schoolers or from post secondary students. But also the intervention was focused on one. So if we had done reading and math, would they generalize to science? If we teach reading and math and science, would they generalize to social studies? Because I would imagine at some point you start to get practice making cross linkages between explicitly taught domains that do start to see some broader generalization. I just, I would just, I would speculate that that's real. So it's something else to consider, especially for folks in your context that's generalized. Of, 
I would imagine if I was in that context, I would want to do specific targeted interventions initially and then explicitly teach generalization strategies in order to hopefully eventually build their capacity to do it autonomously. Uh, we didn't talk about the third measurement, the final measurement, the three years later measurement. Yeah. And that one is different than the others. And it's highly contextualized. And man, it was it was interesting. So apparently in the German education system, at some point during their secondary education experience, they I don't do they select a track for themselves? I mean, you have to like compete to get into colleges. And while it's not explicitly tracked, it is, I would say, at least informally, perhaps in some cases, even explicitly tracked. You know, there is a prestigious school and there's a fallback school and that that is really systematized in Germany. And so students are competing to get into the track for call for collegiate participation for gymnasium is what I, what I think they call it. Um, and that they have to compete to do that. They have to score high on an exam to be allowed to then go on to that track of post-secondary experience. I didn't we're grasp the details. We're struggling over here. Yeah. This whole thing is outside of our purview. It's beyond our, our, our experience. Um, but they, they have a measure, they, Germany, has a measure for elementary students that is well understood to correlate to success on that that exam, that comp competitive exam. And they saw in these first graders when they were fourth graders that they had improved performance on that, whatever, milestone measure that correlates with success on the future exam. Uh, and that, that performance closed the performance gap based on socioeconomic status. So that a reduced gap in performance, which is really exciting for folks who are interested in uh, increasing representation in post-secondary education, at least in, in that context. Yeah, the findings were good. The system makes me feel weird. I'm trying to reserve judgment because I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. They did better on some tests three years later. In addition to all the other things they did better on. Yeah. Which would be a good enough reason already to, to consider doing explicit self-regulation instruction. Absolutely. Even with first graders, even though it's really hard. Even though it's really hard. Things we're doing generally are. We don't do these things because they are easy, but because they are hard. Know your students. For our second segment, we read how pre-service teachers learn through a pedagogy of enactment in a middle school mathematics methods course. This was written by Mary Auching and Laura Van Zoost. Published in 2022 in Cognition and Instruction. Why did we cue this paper, Ralph? So I queued this paper because I was actively looking for things worth reading and was going through my, my research aggregator and this was fresh. We've read a number of things in Cognition and Instruction. That's a familiar journal for us. And in particular, what I liked was it's about professional development here. It's in a pre-service teacher context, but it's really useful for anybody who's thinking about learning themselves as a teacher or facilitating learning with teachers in a lot of contexts. And I really was excited by the idea of a pedagogy of enactment because this is something that I have been passionate about for the entirety of my career and lacked the precise language to put to it. And everybody in my life is about to hear pedagogy of enactment a lot because I am excited to have words for it. 
Uh, yeah, as I was reading this paper, I thought that uh, segment one was for me and where I was and who I was as a teacher. And segment two is for you about who you are and where you are as a teacher. And so the fact that it was like, I I'm reading it, like, yeah, this is interesting. Oh, this is cool. And this is definitely Michael Ralph's thing. So like, I, 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 I feel that resonance from you. Uh, and so the, the general premise, the first thing I wrote in my notes was learning to teach requires doing teaching. And that's really the thing that I have said out loud. I've said it to pre-service teachers I've been teaching in the past. Like there's just no substitute for doing it compared to listening to somebody talk about it. And that's true in a lot of contexts, but I feel like it's particularly true in practice-based professions of which teaching is one. Absolutely. We've had it. We've said it on the show before. We're not the only people that think that, you know, the the doctor model of of practice education and internship and spending years and years in rotations working closely with and observing other doctors, um, that that model, uh, if it were applied to education and instead of instead of, you know, one semester of student teaching and then off you go, um, if we had these sort of longer internship transitioning into profession periods, um, we would see great benefit in the practice of teachers across the board. And in particular, I, I want to call out in that model the attending position, which doesn't really exist as an analog in teaching. There, there are internships or student teaching. There are residency models. I, I serve as a board member for a residency program in Kansas City. So those exist also. But I am not aware of a single example of an attending model, which if you're familiar with the medical training approach, it would be the next step after a resident. So you are a professional. You are working in context. You are still supported by somebody who is more experienced and more trained than you are as you engage in autonomous practice. And that's the piece that I feel like, even though this paper focuses on pre-service teachers, could be equally applicable to somebody who is a coach of teachers, to somebody who is an instructional resource teacher, to somebody who is just an informal leader in, in your department, and anybody is asking you, what do you think? You could approach it with some of these same takeaways. Uh, one of the things that I liked about this is that it's not just, and I, and I, I say just it with a little twinge of judgment, it sounds like, um, but it's not just their role-playing teaching situations. In this example, the, the teaching student teacher was teaching student student teachers actual relevant content that they needed to learn which i loved right it's it, it's not it's not okay we're all going to be science teachers i'm going to teach you guys the sixth grade biology lesson no we're all going to be science teachers and i'm going to teach you a a collegiate level or graduate level science document because that is where we will practice authentic learning interactions. And I might only do five or 10 minutes of this robust and advanced ecology idea that I happened to learn and really loved in my, in my other course last semester. But you all don't have that experience. Or in this context, they were doing mathematics topics. And that's an authenticity. Yeah. Authenticity is the deal.
Yeah, it was ex. It was excellent. It was. I don't. I mean, I've I've seen role playing, and I've seen. Um, you know, we're gonna watch you teach other kids. Like we're gonna have three student teachers there, and one of them is teaching, and the other two are watching. And there's five kids, and they're. I'm watching you teach this small lesson, and then we go debrief about it afterwards. No. Everyone there is learning to teach. Everyone there is learning to teach, and they're doing it by learning. It's a, I felt like there was a lot of overlap in this methodology. It is different, and they even lay it out in their framework section. But there's a lot of overlap and precedent in some of the other developing ways that uh, teacher preparation programs are doing sort of uh, pedagogies of enactment. And there was one they didn't, they didn't name check in their framework that I thought of because it was my favorite paper in season four, where we read a whole paper about the Teatro de Oprimido, which is another approach to this sort of rehearsal and role play, but with authenticity and with an emphasis on student discourse. And that was something that they laid out in the paper that was essential. And they put it at the beginning. And honestly, I wish there was a few more words associated with it because I wanted more discussion to make it clear of its importance of establishing classroom norms that the the student teachers accept responsibility for their own learning and for the learning of their peers. We have to be able to have real authentic discussions about how everybody is doing. There's no nice job, A plus, move on kind of a dynamic, but that we we as student teachers are going to reflect on what works, where it might be better, what our personal experience was in these sort of small bell ringer exercises. And I think the construction of that environment is probably really what prompted my thinking of the theater that we read about in 047 because that was also emphasized in that approach and that uh, that sort of rehearsal dynamic of we have to build a culture where we can talk to each other in honest ways about what was good and what could be better. Um, they gave one of the norms explicitly being kind critique. And Mr. Woodruff, this is actually an area where I feel like you and I, um, that's one of the things that I find most valuable about these these activities every month is that sort of honest dialogue and critique amongst ourselves. Um, it's why I show up every month. And that's what we have to build with with our colleagues if we're in that sort of a learning scenario or in this context with pre-service teachers amongst themselves. Uh, let's get to the nitty gritty. So we've got a teacher teaching. We, we've got pre-service teachers. They've got an instructor. The instructor's got a methods course, and the way this instructor starts the methods course is with their bell ringer sequence. And what that means is that one of the students teaches, this is a method for math, they're all going to teach either elementary or middle school math. And so one of the teacher teaches a 10-minute lesson at the beginning of the class to the other students in the class and the instructor is going to be a coach for that process the instructor and the student of the day or the the student teacher of the day meet ahead of time to discuss plan out strategize what that 10 minutes is going to be like then the student shows up gives that 10 minute bell ringer experience and then they all debrief that learning experience uh, and then the students uh, reflect on those learning experiences. That's the sequence that the teachers exhibit. And what this paper did was what I think 
it seemed like a daunting and somewhat heroic task of turning all of those experiments into documents and then coding those for when students were learning during those exchanges and then trying to figure out what were the language and the uh, communications that prompted the learning experiences that students have. There are things that are good that I think are worth drawing out across both their findings, but also even just the methodology of implementation that they describe from which they've generated all of their data. Because one of the things that I loved was we demonstrate our priorities with our time and their commitment to we're not just we're not just going to do it, but a pedagogy of enactment requires that pre-meeting. There, let's make sure that this is going to be valuable. That you will make productive mistakes. Let's not make unproductive mistakes. Let's make productive ones going into it, and then demonstrating through class time the discussion afterwards. And so, I really want to draw out there the investment that's required to really get value out of it. And that mirrors a lot of our other discussions. We have to pick the tools we're going to use and then commit to using them well. And this is an instance where, yes, I could very easily let my colleague come in and teach the first 10 minutes of my class to try something new, and then they leave and we're done with it. But if that's all I do, that's, that's not going to be a particularly valuable use of the time. We really have to invest in getting all of the learning opportunities out of it. And that was actually the first thing that stood out to me in their findings was just how much of the learning is hard to find in the explicit dialogue that these pre-service teachers were having. I want to drop the stat on you because it was remarkable to me. 107 of the 178 learning outcomes, learning instances, things that were learned were not directly observable in the conversations that they documented. 60% of what was learned was not directly visible in the dialogue, which I feel like both underscore complexity of how teachers learn about the art and science of teaching and also the importance of being in the room because we know that we're learning and getting better at these things, even though maybe I can't highlight the specific word that illustrates it, that there's a lot going on in there and all of it shows up in the words. Uh, It was really interesting to me, uh, the examples, it helped me build a better understanding of the depth to which they they did their coding to interpret what a learning experience was. Like this is a learning instance. Like when you said you had they had like 178 learning instances, they had to decide which of these in all of this text and exchange, a whole school year of 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 bell ringers, which of these had moments of of evidence of learning. They give good concrete examples of those moments when you know a kid in your classroom's got it. Like, yes, that is what we're looking for. That's the kind of communication we need to affirm that they are making progress. And also there are a couple of times when there's like some example teacher scaffolding, teacher support, teacher uh, redirection that is uh, helpful in terms of what are the types of interventions and interaction patterns and speech patterns teachers need to be doing in order to guide a discussion into that place. Um, This paper isn't necessarily about the nitty gritty of how do you have productive discussions? What are the redirecting questions you should ask? How do you scaffold students? But it's kind of a, it's kind of assumed prerequisite that all of this resides on. 
that we've been discussing about the role of that instructor, she's doing this and her stuff isn't what she's coding. So it doesn't have a forefront in the paper. Uh, but it's definitely there. And they formalized a description I thought was useful because it called out the middle section that I hadn't thought a lot about prior to reading this paper. So they sort of identified three phases of how this teacher learning plays out. And the first phase is where you, know, you identify, here's, a, here's an opportunity, we have surfaced something where there can be an object of learning, we can learn about this thing. But then I, I loved the word is what it gave me, it gave me pause. They called the second phase precisification. And again, I don't know if I'm saying that word correctly or not, but um, precisely identifying or problematizing was a word that I, that I put to it. Where in this object for learning is there the tension or the mismatch or the issue? Like what is specifically what we need to resolve in this thing so that I can be better at talking to myself about how I can work as a teacher? And I thought that was interesting because it foregrounds the importance of just because that's a moment where I need to do better and I know that isn't really enough until I can nail down what is it in this moment that I need to do better? And I need to be able to be in the habit and execute the behavior of identifying why was that? What about this in a precise way? What about this can I do better as an instructor in order to then move on to the third phase, which is finding peace again, reaching equilibrium um, and finding a new way forward, how I will engage with similar, similar events in the future. To, to sort of imagine what an example would look like, I could imagine, again, in a bell ringer scenario, students are coming into my classroom and I have a task or a prompt that I want them to respond to at the very beginning. And let us imagine that there's a student who walks into, into my classroom and they sit down and they open up their, their journal, they read the prompt, and then they get on their phone. I can identify this as an opportunity for me to, to meet, for me to learn about how I engage in my practice. But the precisification step, again, I have no idea if I'm saying that word correctly, is why is that student unengaged? I could imagine, oh, they're just not interested in the prompt. And so I could try to differentiate the prompt to a new, a new subject that maybe does resonate with them and that may or may not increase their engagement with the prompt or perhaps they were disengaged because they're hungry and I have to deal with that problem and so it doesn't really matter what subject I transition to if I'm not solving that problem. I have to identify specifically and precisely why that student is not engaging with the particular task I'd hope they'd engage with in order for me to solve it and if I don't engage in that process and you might choose not to. And move swiftly into just making some sort of change, that change will be misaligned to the problem and I won't actually make progress. And so I can imagine if I just if I just swing the punitive hammer and I'm just gonna punish every student who's not working on this question, then that might solve a couple of the problems, but it will fail to solve some of the problems. In fact, it will probably exacerbate some of the problems. And so we have to do that second step of precisely identifying what the actual issue is. Intent matters. How was the beer? My first experience when I first tasted it that was very uh, 
spices was the first thing I noticed. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can drink two beers worth of these spices. But it very quickly gave way. And so it's become easier to drink to me. And so uh, so it's, it's a little bit pumpkin spicy in the first half and then gives way to something that's much closer to a typical ale is how I have experienced it. We have a pretty similar read on this beer. I wrote that it is a it is sweet early, it's spicy in the middle, and it, it's a bitter ale at the end. And if if you are afraid of a like if you like ales but you're you don't like a strong, powerful, or adventurous aftertastes, this doesn't have one. To me, the funnest part about this beer is the name. Yumpkin Pumpkin is an ace name. Yeah, very good. Very yeah. Good. Thanks for tuning in for another episode. Happy Halloween and happy Thanksgiving as this episode will come out after Halloween. We appreciate you listening. We hope you found this valuable. Remember to chime in on twopintplc.com if you have comments on the discussion, if you're looking for more resources, or if you have suggestions for the kinds of things we should read on future episodes, because this is absolutely better together. Otherwise, we'll see you next month. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.